With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters-in-Law with Kimberly Atkins-Store, Jill Weinbanks, Barb McQuaid, and me, Joyce Vance. Before we begin, we've got some exciting news to share. Kim, why don't you tell us about it? I cannot wait. We are planning a live Hashtag Sisters-in-Law tour. Ah! Yes! We are so psyched. And we would love your input. So go to our survey link in this week's show notes to help us figure out which cities we should visit. If you want us to come see you, you really need to fill this out. You can also enter a drawing to win some hashtag Sisters-in-Law merch. So put your town on the Sisters-in-Law road map. Thanks, Kim. I am so excited about this. Looking forward to finding out which cities are going to be the winners. And it will be so exciting to get to see our listeners in person. So please go ahead and fill out your survey now. Today, we're going to jump right in because we've got a full docket. First, we'll be talking about new reporting on a Republican plan to activate poll workers to keep Democrats from voting and from having their votes counted. We'll also dive into the indictment of former Trump aide Peter Navarro and the acquittal in the Sussman prosecution. And last, we'll talk about the most recent shooting at a Tulsa hospital, President Biden's speech last night, and our take on what needs to happen next. And as always, we'll look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. But first, I need to ask y'all, I actually need some advice from my sisters. You know, some mornings I get up and I just have a hard time convincing myself to start my day. So I wanted to find out if you have morning rituals or if there's something that you do that gets you going in the morning first thing. I'm a bad one to answer that question because I (laughs) hate mornings. Hate, hate, hate. Jill rarely sees a morning. Well, she sees them, but she sees them from midnight to like 6 a.m. That's, I, I went to bed last night at 5 a.m. Wow. So, I, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. But on a normal day when I go to bed at 2 a.m., um, when the alarm goes off or on those rare occasions when I don't have to set one, I get up and I basically sit for at least 10 or 15 minutes just to get my brain activated by doing nothing or by reading emails on my phone. I just, I can't get going right away. And then I do all the normal things, you know, brushing your teeth and putting in my contact lenses. And I don't even always have coffee because it has no impact on me. It doesn't wake me up. (laughs) So I look forward to kisses from Brisby and from Michael in that order (laughs) uh, because Brisby runs to greet me immediately. So that's pretty much my morning routine is Brisby and Michael greeting me. What about you, Barb? Well, in the summer, I actually get up very early to work out because it's so beautiful. And I have become cognizant that, you know, 
Michigan summers are gorgeous, but they last for like five minutes. So you really have to seize the day. Um, and so um, during the summer, uh, my husband and I get up very, very early and we bike down to this little neighborhood pool and we swim um, first thing in the morning. And it's the greatest. Um, we're down there swimming by 7 a.m. Jill, don't vomit. There's a seven o'clock in the morning too, it turns out. <laughs> Um, but we love it. And it's such a, I feel so good when I exercise in the morning. Um, and then I'll come home and have some coffee and sit on the porch and read, you know, read the paper for the day. Um, and I can still, you know, jump into my day by, you know, eight, eight thirty or nine o'clock. So, um, that has become my, my summertime ritual. What about you, Kim? Yeah. It's funny that you ask this because I was just telling myself one thing that I was doing during the pandemic to help stay sane was the first thing I would do in the morning was get up and do yoga. And I wanted to do it so that there were specific things to break up my day, because it could be tough when you were really hemmed in. And it also just provided a moment of clarity, uh, a moment to enjoy the quiet of the house and to sort of center myself in a way that afterwards I was always so glad that I did it. It's hard to motivate and get out of your nice warm bed and, and to go get on the yoga mat. But every single time after I did it, I thought, oh, I'm so glad that I did it. And I want to bring that back into practice. Uh, and so you're motivating me to do that. It's a really great way to start the day. That's absolutely fascinating that that was your answer because that's what animated my question. You know, I've had a broken foot since early March. Mm. It's taking its time healing. I'm getting close, but it meant that I had to give up yoga. You can't really do yoga very well with a broken foot. There's no, a little bit of stuff that you can do, but you can't, you know, do a, a standard Ashtanga flow. No. And I've missed that. And I realized how dependent I had become on that in the mornings. So I've been convincing myself that doing Wordle every morning the New York Times word game is sort of the equivalent. It wakes me up enough that I can go downstairs and, and do my chicken farmer routine. Oh, but it but makes I me have... angry. Usually because, also <laughs> because my husband all? always beats me. Oh, He's so much better bad. at it than I me. I have to stay up at least like until that. midnight when it come, when it resets to do it before I go to bed. <laughs> I, I can't resist. I stay up. I'm with you, Barb. That's my nighttime. It's, it's uh -huh. sort of like I do that and then I give myself permission. Now you can go to bed. So I've been forcing myself to not do it at night. I've been yeah. making myself wait to wait do it the in the morning. morning to wake my brain up. Because like y'all, I used to always do it at midnight. Yeah, no. But today I got it in three. And my Me too. Four. I was four. I had a total miss on so my I first word. I got no letters. Oh. <laughs> do you have a go-to start word for Wordle? I use a different word every day. Just oh, whatever wrong pops with you. into you my mind. Oh. Go-to word? I, I used to do that and it didn't work. And it's when I started mixing them up that I got better results. Yeah. So I, mix really? them I, I use the same. I use, I use a do because I it use has a do also. so many vowels. It's a great mm -hmm. word to start with. Yeah, it's got a lot um, of vowels. I do a yeah. do, story, chalk, venom. And I, I get it every time. It's almost like become too formulaic. But if you do I'll that, give you, get such a, you get a lot of yeah. letters yeah. covered. Yeah. I used to do steak, which I don't do anymore, so I can reveal it now. I used to do steak, and it didn't. Um, it just didn't work as well as... You stopped when you became a vegetarian? Some... <laughs> 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 do you guys do Quirtle, the four, the four word, the Wordle with four? I no. don't like Quirtle, but I'll sometimes like do the B on the times. I'd say I do the B about half the time. I'm a purist. I do the B. I love that one. 
It's a lot of fun. Well, y'all, tell us what what you do. If you do Wordle, if you do the B, if you have other word games. And I'd love to hear how you wake up in the morning. Please tweet at us or shoot us an email and let us know. I hate starting out on a depressing note, but I think the reality is that we and all our listeners are really worried about the upcoming midterms and the primaries leading up to them. We've heard many pundits say 2020 was a practice run for 2024 and that the Republicans learned a lot and will be more effective this time. There's some real evidence that the GOP is now making progress in that respect with a plan they have put in place or are talking about to use poll workers, lawyers, friendly DAs, and police chiefs as part of a machine that will suppress Democratic votes. There's dramatic evidence of this plot in recently released tapes of GOP leaders meeting with grassroots workers. Our former MSNBC colleague Heidi Presbelo wrote a terrific piece in Politico about this, which I'll put in our show notes so that you can see it, and it includes audio clips. Barb, um, although this is supposed to be nationwide, it did focus on Michigan. So tell us about the plans and why they could suppress the vote. Yeah, this is great reporting by Heidi Prisbola, who hails from Michigan. So maybe she got some good inside scoops um, from those connections. But um, the the plan that she um, uh, disclosed in her piece um, is that in Michigan, the Republican Party is recruiting poll workers to work at the polls. You know, on its face, it doesn't sound bad. And it is actually part of the Michigan plan to make sure that there is um, bipartisanship in the people who work the polls. You know, these are the people who open the doors at 7 a.m. when the polls open. They may they check your ID. They work you through the line. Uh, they close the polls at 8 o'clock. They make sure that the votes are secured. There is a different job called challenger that is that represents each party who can come in. And if they think that there is a person who is voting improperly at a particular precinct, for example, they can challenge that voter. And then the poll worker is sort of the neutral arbiter who makes a decision as to whether that person can vote or not. And so they're not recruiting challengers, which I've seen in the past from both parties. What they're instead doing is recruiting the poll workers to be the neutral people who are there to serve as the arbiters, as the referees. And Michigan law permits that in an effort to uh, make sure that there is this bipartisanship and one party doesn't dominate those jobs. But what they're doing is recruiting people who are election deniers to hold those positions because they're concerned that fraud will be committed if they don't. And they have said things like in, in a recording that, um, that we're, we're going to trap the uh, Detroit city clerk um you know, I, I think they've got some theory that Democrats are filling these jobs in part because in Detroit, the voters tend to vote heavily Democratic. And so the poll workers tend to reflect that as well. And so they want to, you know, flood the zone with Republicans. On its face, I think it's fine, but it appears that this is part of a strategy uh, to try to seize control of those poll workers. And if those are not neutral people who are acting with great integrity, I, I think there's reason for concern. And, and we should point out that part of what we heard on these audio tapes was that they are going to train the poll 
workers. These aren't poll watchers. These are the poll workers. They're going to train them to challenge voters. That's the principal reason they want them there. They want to cause chaos. They want to disrupt the voting. They're going to make people who don't have time to go through the challenge process give up their right to vote. And um, so, Joyce, maybe you can talk more about these recruiting and training plans and what laws that that might violate. So I think you draw absolutely the right distinction here, Jill, and that's the distinction between poll watchers and poll workers. A lot of people, you know, um, act as poll watchers, and they can be representing political parties. DOJ sends out poll watchers to certain jurisdictions. And those people would fulfill a role that's more like what this reporting Heidi has in visions for poll workers who, you know, that's your neighbor. You go in and you ask for a ballot, and it's a neighbor sitting there, and, and you know the guy who's been running your precinct for the last 20 years. They're essentially professionals. They're objective. They're there to make sure that the process works. And so what's really pernicious here is this effort to insert politics yet again into a voting process that's supposed to let everybody vote, no matter who they're going to vote for. And I'll tell you what scares me so much about this and why I do think there's some risk of illegality or criminality here. I have seen this before. This is a procedure that the Republican Party has used in the past to create programs that defeat Americans in the exercise of their rights. This isn't, I don't think, an organic creation in Michigan. They tend to sort of cradle, develop these issues, and then push them out to states that they think are ripe for their use. We saw that with anti-immigration proposals that happened in Arizona and Alabama, where they tested these horrible anti-immigration laws in states that they thought were likely to adopt them. A lot of the same work happened in voting, and that's why we now have some of these statutes that, for instance, allow secretaries of state to prune the rolls from active voters. Some of those provisions were also essentially workshopped um, in, in parts of the right wing of the Republican Party. So they are very careful when they develop these plans to make sure that they don't per se on their faces violate the law. My assumption is that that's what's happened here in Michigan. But, you know, I, I think it's very likely that there will be an overzealous poll worker who will cross the line an overzealous group of poll workers who were, will perhaps run afoul of the federal law that makes it a crime to engage in a conspiracy that's designed to prevent people from exercising their rights. So I think it will be important for DOJ, for state and local parties to stay in place. I, I suspect like some of y'all, I have worked in the Democratic Party's boiler room on election day. And usually what you're doing um, you're making sure that everything works smoothly. If you've got a polling place, you know, and it always happens in Montgomery, Alabama, that some of the majority black polling places run out of ballots, you have to make sure that that gets remedied smoothly so that people don't have to wait in line for too long. That's what usually goes on in the boiler rooms. This will insert a whole new layer of activity into the boiler rooms where it's actually the poll workers, the people that you're used to calling for help that you will have to be on guard against. I think I think it's a frightening development. We've got to keep eyes on this. So the problem that we have, and we know my experience working Alabama elections, is that it seems like the central folks 
in Montgomery, the people that run our elections, they always seem to underestimate the number of ballots or the number of voting machines that will be needed in majority black polling places. It's just like what we're now seeing in Georgia, where there are efforts to cut down on the number of polling places where people can go and vote. The people who are already finding that their votes are suppressed, where there's the strongest effort to suppress voting, that they will be put even more at risk with this sort of a plan. And Joyce, could you also comment on one part of the training that was talked about was that they were going to have people developing relationships with judges and police chiefs and friendly district attorneys. That seemed to me to be terrifying. So I'm on board with this right until we get to, quote, friendly district attorneys. You know, people during elections do have contact with state and local officials, and it's very routine down here for us to be in touch with police chiefs and with sheriffs. Because, for instance, I, I dealt with a situation the last go-round where there was an accident that had taken place outside of a polling place, and there were a whole bunch of police cars out there. And, and you know, for some people, that can tend to, to um make them nervous about going to vote when they see that large amount of police activity. So we worked with them to clear that and get out of the way so people could go about their, vis their business voting. Good to have relationships, but that's not what this is. This is about finding friendly DAs, and it explicitly says, because they are the people who can launch investigations. You know, friendly sheriffs, those are the people who very often will help with control of ballots, physical ballots and ballot boxes. So I don't read into this any good intent to help people vote and to make it easier for people to vote. I think that this is the development of plans that make it easier to engage in the sort of conduct that Trump wanted people, right, in Georgia, where he wanted them to find him a number of votes now they're actually putting those plans in place ahead of the election. And, and it's really frightening. I mean, I just can't tell you, I've done election protection work for decades. I've never seen anything as frightening as this reporting. So Kim, instead of being afraid and just concerned, what should Democrats do? How should they respond to this? Should they put in place the same sort of thing or develop some defense to this tactic, hiring lawyers who will fight the fight that's being brought by the Republican poll workers? What what should happen to prevent disenfranchisement of people? I mean, by meaning the same sort of thing, by sort of crossing the line into potential illegality. No, <laughs> I don't think that Democrats should do that. But what Democrats need to do is to take this seriously and to understand exactly what the stakes are and do everything that they can. And does that mean using the legal system and hiring attorneys to ensure um, that voters have protection against some of these frivolous challenges that this is setting up? Absolutely, 100%. And I think even more importantly, it's important for voters, particularly voters in the districts that we're talking about. It is not an accident, just to underscore Joyce's point, it is not an accident that the main states that were challenged in 2020 in the effort to overturn the results of the election were Pennsylvania, based on the votes that were cast in Philly, Michigan, based on the votes that were cast in and around Detroit, uh, Georgia, based on the votes that were cast in and around Atlanta, and Wisconsin, based on the votes that were cast in and around Milwaukee. 
this the folks knew that the most uh, motivated, energized and reliable voters for the Democratic Party in those districts were black and brown voters. This this is such an important aspect that we can't miss. And we can expect that to be repeated in 2022 and 2024. So in those districts, particularly voters need to be armed with information and understanding on what to do if they find themselves in a situation where their votes are challenged. Either they go to a district that has changed or they want to cast a provisional vote and they are not allowed to, they are questioned about their voting registration status, any of those things. And there are a lot of organizations that are in place um, that they should know about, that they can turn to, to try to get additional information. As a reporter, I have not, I'm one of the people who have not worked in the uh, Democratic or Republican or any party um, uh, war room because I've been a journalist for, for the past quarter century. But one place that I go on election day to find out what shenanigans are going on is I tune into groups like the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. If you go to their website, they have information for voters to what to do if you come across uh, voter suppression, voter intimidation efforts, uh, any sort of effort that you think does not feel right and that is keeping you from casting your vote, that is one place to go. Also, the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund is very focused on voting rights protections. Um, you can also uh, go to the Democracy Docket, which is a newer organization that was started by Mark Elias. Mark Elias is leading a lot of the litigation that is going on to stop efforts to disenfranchise voters. These are some places to go to before Election Day to make sure you have the information that you need uh, if you feel that your right to vote is being threatened or compromised. And Democrats should make sure that they are ready to wage the same sort of legal challenges that Republicans stand ready to do on Election Day to make sure that every vote is counted. And there's another election tactic being developed in Arizona that is just as frightening and very likely to suppress voters, particularly voters of color, and create chaos as much as the poll worker plot. Barb, can you tell us uh, about this? It involves the use of vigilantes. And tell us what this plan is. Yeah, so in Arizona, a state senator who's a Republican has actually called on vigilantes. He is uh, encouraging people to come out to spy on people who deposit their ballots in those drop boxes before election day. There is a conspiracy theory that uh, there are people who are called mules or ballot harvesters who are taking huge drops of uh, bundles of ballots and depositing them in these boxes because they're all made up and they're all fraudulent. And the vigilantes should use hidden cameras um, and videotape and photograph voters who come to deposit their ballots in these legitimate ballot boxes and then follow them to their cars and take pictures of their license plates so that they can build fraud cases against all of this imaginary fraud that is taking place. And a concern I have, I think most of us would have, is who wants to subject themselves to that, that this will suppress voting in early voting states, that people will say, I don't want to be subject to that. I'll just wait and vote on Election Day, which, of course, uh, makes it more difficult for people to vote. People end up having to work or have other emergencies arise. They can't take advantage of that uh, early voting, which is intended to maximize voter access. And, and so I, I think it's a scare tactic. 
even if vigilantes don't answer the call, I imagine there will be some who do, but I think it could really have a chilling effect on people who use early voting. So it is once again, a, you know, just a, a tactic to try to attack voting rights in this country. And we can imagine that like the other plan, the vigilantes will be stationed in the areas where they expect Democratic voters to prevail. So, Joyce, what are the consequences and what can and should Democrats do to combat this? Yeah, so this is um, this is everything uh, old is new again, right? This is an era that we've lived through before where we had this sort of an effort to keep tabs on voters in a way that was threatening and that actually prevented them from voting on Election Day itself. And so there's a roadmap for dealing with that. And the Justice Department is a big part of that. I feel good about the leadership at DOJ. Kristen Clark, who runs the Civil Rights Division, understands what this old playbook looks like. And DOJ has statutory ambit to deal with this, talking about conspiracies that are designed to suppress voting. So there's steps that can be taken in that regard. I think Kim has also given us a really good list of the sort of places that you go and, and things that you do. So I think it'll be important for the Democratic Party to train poll watchers. Individual voters can use the kind of resources that Kim has mentioned. One of my favorites is the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, which will push out its 1-800 number. And all of the civil rights uh, groups will pool information and knowledge. They'll have people in, in sort of different geographic parts of the country, but folks will work together to pool resources. If you are a voter who feels threatened in early voting or day of election voting, you should immediately find one of these um, phone numbers and reach out. People will help you. I mean, literally, they will match up a poll worker with a problem and make sure that that voter can uh, get their their ballot counted. And then the last thing that I would suggest, and I'm a big advocate of this, you cannot be removed from the active voter rolls after 90 days before an election. So we all need to check our voting status. Once we're past that 90-day mark, go to vote.org. It's really easy. You can put in your name and where you live, and you'll get something that will show whether you're an active voter or not. And you should screenshot that. And then if somebody tries to suggest that you're voting wrongfully, you've got the actual proof that you're a registered voter. This can also help if you find that you've been removed from active status. You've got plenty of time to get it fixed before the election. So this is just one of those good, healthy voting practices we should all get in the habit of engaging in. Thank you, Joyce. That is such good advice. The thing that strikes me is how sad it is that we aren't talking about turning to government to help because government is the problem. But in some states and in some cities and some jurisdictions, your local DA may be someone you trust, your attorney general. I know when I was um, deputy attorney general in Illinois, we monitored elections and we were there to help people vote. So it is possible that you can turn to some government agencies. Wait, can I just stop the conversation here for one moment? Jill, did you just say you were once the deputy attorney general of the state of Illinois? You know, once again, is there a legal job in America that Jill Weinbanks has not held? I've never been U.S. attorney and you have been. All right. Well done. Touche. Uh, <laughs> the best is yet to come, Jill. <laughs>
Well, Peter Navarro, a former Trump administration official, has been indicted for contempt of Congress. He joins Steve Bannon among defendants who've been charged for refusing to comply with a subpoena to testify before the January 6th committee. Kim, can you tell us who is Peter Navarro and why would the committee be interested in his testimony? Yeah, so Peter Navarro is the first person who was a Trump uh, White House official on January 6th to be indicted. So that's what makes this such a big deal. We had Steve Bannon before, but he was a previous uh, White House official. He was the trade advisor. That was his technical title. But he was one of the people who were closest to Trump. He was also one of the biggest perpetuators of the big lie, even authorizing his aides to produce reports backing up this nonsensical claim that the election was somehow stolen. He was also in touch with the folks at the Willard Hotel, that so-called war room, uh, in the day leading up to January 6th and everything that happened there. So certainly somebody who would be uh, of keen interest by the January 6th committee. He did not uh, go in, produce some documents, make a claim of privilege, as one might do if they think they actually have a claim of privilege. He has just ignored the committee outright and done tons of media talking about all the ways that he ignored it. So he was essentially asking for this indictment, uh, and it has finally come down. Yeah, Joyce, tell us about the charges. And does he have any possible defenses that might fly? Peter Navarro really needs to get a lawyer. I have to say, I don't have any sympathy for him, but it's become more and more painful to watch him mm-hmm. confessing to Ari Melber mm-hmm. over the last few All the you time. Know, more than once. It's like, he did it last night. He did it last night. Ari yeah. has him yeah. on and, and he yeah. says what, the, you know, Navarro explains what they did and Ari looks at him in astonishment and says, you know, you just <laughs> admitted to a coup. <laughs> And Navarro just never seems to get it. So um, does he have a defense? No, he doesn't have a defense. You know, you have to show up. You've got to make some effort, right, to to comply. You can't just say, screw you guys, I'm, I'm going home, um, which is essentially what he's done here. He said that he's going to rely on President Trump's assertion of executive privilege, and even the Supreme Court has now said, no, that's not really going to work for you so much. So two counts in this indictment. They're both misdemeanors, interference with Congress. It's a very rarely used statute. Misdemeanor means that if he's convicted, he goes to prison for less than a year. It could be significantly less than a year. But nonetheless, this is um, a hammer that DOJ has now that they can use against him. I think it's notable that they apparently did not permit him to turn in today. Typically, when somebody's indicted, they're permitted to show up on their own. Here, DOJ said, you know, we have some concerns. They sealed the indictment for long enough to execute the arrest warrant, and they took him into custody for his first appearance. I think that there's a little bit more going on there. We'll have to wait and see what what promoted that or what provoked that. Joyce, did they actually arrest him? I did read um, notes that said he was in custody, but of course, he could be in custody even if his lawyer turned him in. They still get processed by the marshals, even if they're turned he in. Was he actually arrested? So, was he arrested? So that's actually what I thought. And I went back and I checked with Ryan Riley, the NBC reporter, on this story. And and DOJ seals. They say we need to seal because, you know, we have some sure. concerns. And then they go out and they arrest him. At least mm. that's the state of the reporting right now. I did push back on that. I thought it seemed very unlikely that he would be arrested and far more likely that he had shown up for processing and that they would take him into the courtroom. 
But I am told that that's not the case, that he was arrested. So we'll see. Well, Kim raises a good point that if he doesn't have a lawyer, then you probably don't have a choice. You you probably do have to go arrest him. If you have a lawyer, you can ask him to have the lawyer turn himself in. And as an officer of the court, you entrust the lawyer to, you know, make good on that promise. If he doesn't have a lawyer, I don't think you have a choice. You got to go get him. I've had a lot of people without lawyers who we've permitted to turn in. You serve them with a with the well, indictment the and tell the them when to show up for arraignment and processing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So mm. I, I feel like yeah. if, if this reporting holds up, right, mm-hmm. it feels like maybe there was something there that gave DOJ some concern. I, I want to ask another question about him not having a lawyer because the first reaction I had to was he doesn't have a lawyer because no lawyer will represent him because <laughs> he is making such cockamamie Allegations. Oh, come on, even Trump has a lawyer. Yeah, there's always well, a lawyer, yeah. Jill. But it isn't, People, yeah. Maybe he doesn't have any money. <laughs> well, he said it would cost him $100,000 if he had to hire a lawyer, and that's why he was going pro se. But I really do think that there is a good chance that he just couldn't get someone who would maybe. say the things that he wanted them to say now that, for example, Giuliani has been held accountable for his fraudulent false statements, there are consequences. And maybe lawyers aren't willing to go in and say that he has executive privilege when he clearly doesn't. But you know what I do as a prosecutor in that setting? And I've been there before where I've had a defendant that I wanted to talk with pre-indictment who didn't have a lawyer. You can go and you can get a judge to appoint someone for them if they truly can't afford to pay for a lawyer. I think he can afford it. He He can clearly afford it. He just doesn't want to do it. That's a different situation, right? Yeah. All right. Well, let me let me ask Jill a question about about the strategy here. So, what do you think's going on behind the scenes at DOJ? Does the indictment mean that, you know, uh, strategically, they're no longer considering him as a possible witness in the January sixth investigation? Because you know, the, earlier in the week, he revealed that he'd been subpoenaed by DOJ last week, but the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. last Thursday that he got a subpoena to appear before a grand jury um, to testify about this, and he refused, and he published the grand jury subpoena. So I'm sure one had something to do with the other. Do you think it means like, we're just done with you, Peter Navarro, you're, you're now a defendant, um, no chance, or is there a chance he could still cooperate? And is there also a chance that he could still be charged in a larger case, you know, for a conspiracy to defraud the United States by interfering with the election? So that's, uh, the answers to those questions are a mixed bag because yes, he definitely still can cooperate. He can change this. He can say, oh, I made a mistake. I'm willing to cooperate. Here's my documents. When do you want me in? I'll come in and I'll testify. And I won't claim a fallacious uh, privilege that I don't have. And not only doesn't he have one probably, even if it was asserted, but Donald Trump hasn't actually asked him to claim any privilege. And every time that the president who could exert privilege, that is President Biden, he has said, no, this is too important. I want people to turn over documents and cooperate because this is important to the American people. But yes, I mean, he certainly could change things. This is also not a civil contempt. This is criminal. That means that he goes to jail. It means that he doesn't have to testify because the punishment is jail. And he doesn't hold the door, the keys to the jail doors as he would in civil contempt, where as soon as he cooperates, the contempt ends and he's out of jail. So I think that there's um, a reason why 
they decide to go this route. And I do agree with you that there is some connection because it was only a few days ago that he said, oh, and now I'm subpoenaed by the DOJ. And I, and that's totally mm-hmm. wrong because they're just trying to get what the committee can't get. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not answering the committee and now they're trying to end run the committee's subpoena. Well, that isn't the case. And now they're indicting him for that. And they may soon indict him for contempt of of uh for obstruction of justice and not responding to them for the grand jury subpoena. So he can't get away with all of this. So I, I think that there may be another indictment coming, and there's already two counts, which means a, a year possibility for each one of them, a $100,000 fine for each one of them. Mm-hmm. And then you have, you know, whatever's going to come for the DOJ subpoena. So I think that it it could all, and it could, doesn't bar them from, in addition, going after him for being part of a larger conspiracy, which is what I believe the focus of DOJ should be, which is this effort to overturn the election, to force Pence to do something that was clearly illegal. That's where we should be focusing. And I think he could be definitely part of it. He described, as you said, he goes on the beat and says, look, here's what we did. We had all these people set up to do this. And he describes an exact coup attempt and how it was going to work just beautifully until it didn't. So, yes, he's part of a big conspiracy and he deserves to be indicted for that, in addition to obstructing justice and obstructing Congress. In addition to the uh, Navarro Indictment. We also saw some interesting news out of the Justice Department with the acquittal of Michael Sussman. He's the lawyer who was charged by special counsel John Durham with lying to the FBI. And you'll all recall that Durham is a special counsel who was appointed by William Barr when he was attorney general to investigate the origins of the FBI's investigation into connections between Russia and Trump's 2016 presidential campaign. So, Kim, who who is Sussman and what was he charged with? Can you just remind us? Yeah, just very quickly. Uh, Sussman was a lawyer who in the past had worked, uh, had clients, including Hillary Clinton and the DNC. He went to the FBI in 2016 to flag them about what he thought was a connection between the Trump organization and a Moscow affiliated bank. Um, And he was charged with essentially failing to disclose that he was doing that on behalf of a client, meaning Hillary Clinton. He claimed that he was not doing so. Yeah. And um, Joyce, we've talked about this uh, this charge before. Do you think it was a strong case and why or why not? Um, no. And had you not said why or why not, I would have literally just left it at there. This is one of the <laughs> weakest cases <laughs> I've ever seen. Indicted. Every prosecutor I'll, I'll, I've talked to, every former prosecutor has said, yeah. I would never have brought what this case. That? Yeah. I mean, that's absolutely the truth. And, and here's why. This is an indictment under 18 U.S. Code 1001 for lying to federal agents. It's not even clear that there was a lie. Mm-hmm. And remember, the government bears the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And, and even if there was a lie, it's not at all clear. In fact, it's very likely not material, which means whether or not it had the uh, likelihood of, of impacting the FBI's investigation. So this case was, um, you, you know, we used to call files like this in, in my old office a dog, right? Mm-hmm. When you open up the file, it sort of barks at you. <laughs> yeah. um, this one was doomed from the get-go. So, That's an insult it, to dogs. Oh, <laughs> it is, isn't it? Yeah. So, Jill, let me ask you this: if if you agree with with Joyce that it is indeed a dog, and I completely agree with that, why did did um, Durham charge it? Why did 
Merrick Garland allow it to go forward. I think one thing that's really interesting about this indictment is ordinarily a false statements indictment can be a couple of pages. The Navarro indictment for two counts of um, uh, contempt of Congress is only seven pages. This one, one count of false statement is 27 pages long with lots of detail about Hillary Clinton. Why do you think that uh, Durham brought this and why do you think Garland allowed him to do so? So let's start with why he brought it, because he's been appointed and kept on as a special prosecutor, and he's desperately looking for something to justify all the money that has been spent in his his, uh, job, and because they had a predetermined outcome that they wanted to have. Um, As to why he's been permitted to continue it's purely political as far as I'm concerned, is that it would look bad after Barr appointed him as a special counsel for the uh, new attorney general to come in and fire him. Now, at some point, I think that the bad conduct and the failures of this office are going to be so obvious that Garland is going to have to act and stop this nonsense because it's spending a lot of money, wasting a lot of time and creating something else. And that goes to the other question you ask, which is, why is this a 27-page long indictment? And it's because they wanted to make a political case. They wanted to pretend that there was evidence that this was all a big plot by the Hillary Clinton campaign to undermine Donald Trump and to link him falsely to Russia. Now, first of all, we know, and if you read the Mueller or remember the Mueller report, there's plenty of links between Donald Trump and Russia, between the Donald Trump campaign and the Russians trying to help him win and to hurt Hillary. So it fails on that ground. But this, all the language that's in there and You know, it's probably not worth reading all 27 pages, but there are plenty of summaries that show that all of the language in here was intended to perpetuate a false idea of a witch hunt. And that's why it's there. It has nothing to do with the actual charges against Sussman, which, as you pointed out in a very, very well-written opinion piece, which I hope is in our show notes, and if it isn't, it definitely should be added to them, um, there was never any materiality that could have possibly been brought. It's not clear that he ever lied. It's not clear that anybody was misled by him. Everybody knew who his clients were. And even if he had disclosed, even if it had been true that he was representing Hillary Clinton, which he says he wasn't, and I believe that, but even if he was, and even if he had disclosed it, the evidence that he presented to them would have had to been looked at. And that's what the department has said, what the FBI has said, is yes, we would have had to look at this. It was a serious enough piece of information. So I think it was all ridiculous. And I think it was in an attempt to help Donald Trump to unlink him from Putin and to show him as a victim of a Democratic campaign, which never existed. So that's why I think it's 27 pages.
So for the third week in a row, we are talking about gun violence because we have to. So first of all, um, we heard the president speak for the second time in two weeks, begging, quote, for God's sake, end quote, Congress to do something to address the mass shootings in our country. Uh, Now it includes Tulsa, which I think is a perfect example of what should not happen. A person is angry for whatever reason, goes in and buys an AR-15 on the spot and the same day takes it someplace, in this case, a hospital, and kills four people. So I want us all to think of one one change in law, you know, maybe let's help Congress out. One change in law that could address this. One thing that I think that has worked in at the state level are red flag laws. And I know that's one thing that's being negotiated by this uh, group, bipartisan group of uh Congress um, that's trying to come up with something again. They've never done it in the past. My hopes are low, but, um, you know, I guess hope can always spring eternal. But how easy uh, prosecutors would it be to federalize red flag laws, which uh, essentially allow someone to report somebody who is a threat to themselves or someone else and get a motion to uh, an order to temporarily remove their firearms? Um, and also, what laws do you think might work? Let's start with you, Joyce. So I think that while you could theoretically do that, it's fraught. And this is something that's better left. Um, It's usually a process that's handled through your local probate judge. And there are procedures in place for making these kind of findings. You've got to have some form of a hearing because there are due process implications to taking away somebody's property. Barb may have a better take than I do on why it should be federalized. But to me, it seems like this is a process that's better conducted at the local level. Yeah, you know, that is my instinct as well. Although, I guess I'll just make the counter argument. If you allow states to handle it, we're going to have this whole patchwork, right? Some states are going to have very rigorous red flag laws. In in other states, you know, where guns are a way of life, they're going to not have very rigorous laws. And so if you can get one federal statute, it's much easier, a much more efficient way to address the whole country. You'd have to do it in federal courts then, but I think you could have a civil proceeding. You'd also have to have some um, constitutional hook for Congress to regulate this. But, you know, they regulate firearms in many ways uh, as regulation of commerce. We already make it illegal for people who have been prohibited for a variety of reasons from possessing guns, including uh, mental infirmities. And so I think there may be a way for Congress to pass such a law and people to be able to file things in federal court. It It is a little different and it's definitely different from my instincts, but I think it would be far more efficient uh, and, and likely to become a nationwide system if, in, as opposed to allowing states to do it where we'd have a real patchwork of a lot of different laws. And if I could add to that, as someone who lives in Illinois, uh, where we have some strict laws, but adjacent to Indiana, which does not, mm. a lot of the deaths in Illinois from guns are the result of guns coming from Indiana. So although I agree with my fellow prosecutors that my instincts are this is a good local issue, a good local statute. I would look for a way to make it federal because I think this is something that needs a federal solution in order to have guns not come into my state because the next state won't regulate them. 
So, Jill, let me start with you then. The president mentioned uh, a number of things, such as reinstating the federal assault weapons ban, or at the very least, raising the age uh, at which you can buy certain firearms, um, lifting the liability shield for gun makers. What law do you think would work? What should lawmakers be looking at right now, Jill? So, first of all, while I think that it's going to take more than one law, that we need a much more comprehensive law. I also am at a point where I think that let's do it one at a time. Let's just go for it. I think the three that President Biden mentioned are three of the top priorities. I have heard many of the victims of gun violence, many of the leaders of anti-gun or pro-gun safety organizations say that those are the three that would really make a big difference. The statistics on what happened while we had an assault weapons ban and when it expired is dramatic. The amount of mass shootings increased dramatically. No one needs an assault weapon. They are designed as a weapon of war and to kill a large number of people. And if you want one of those rifles, you could have that rifle. You just can't have the magazine. The magazines are high velocity and high capacity And that's how people who aren't even good shots can go in and kill 19 children and two teachers, how they can go in and kill four people. That needs to be banned. And as I say, the numbers really support that. It is data-driven to say that's a law that would make a difference. So if I had to pick one, I would sort of focus on those where there is a data-driven support that says This law will make a difference. And so I would support the three that President Biden suggested and adding to that, barring the ammunition that can allow the high capacity uh, magazines to exist. Barbara, I want to ask you that too. And I also want to ask you to comment on one of my pet peeves is the way that Republicans, including Mitch McConnell, loves to suddenly start talking about mental illness when something like this happens. Is that something that is a cause here for what we're seeing? Well, again, as Jill just said, it's so important to look at data instead of making assumptions about the causes of gun violence. There are actually uh, epidemiological studies that say the large majority of people with serious mental illnesses are not violent. Mental illness is strongly associated with an increased risk of suicide. And suicide actually accounts for more than half of fatalities in the United States with, with guns. So I think we need to be careful about what we're thinking about. You know, and you say, of course there must be something mentally wrong with anyone who would go inside a school and shoot it up. It doesn't necessarily mean that they have the kind of mental illness that we talk about, you know, schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. Oftentimes they are actually sociopaths, people who just want to kill because they want to kill. And I also think that it's overly simplistic to say, we don't need to do anything about guns. We'll just work on mental health. I, I think we need to do both. Uh, you know, any solution is going to require a number of different strategies if we want to truly reduce gun violence in this country. And so, yes, we can focus on mental illness as long as we look at data to decide you know, what, what really is driving the mass shooting problem and addressing that specifically. But I think it is also valuable to take away these weapons 
that can do such massive damage in such a short amount of time. In in Sandy Hook, the the, the shooter there killed you know twenty kids in something like four minutes. Um, mm. If he had instead been there with a handgun or a a, a regular rifle, uh, could he have done that kind of damage? And the other thing about these assault weapons is. When they show, you know, there's been some talk lately about should the public see the bodies of these kids that are horribly mangled. I read a really powerful article written by a doctor, an emergency room doctor, and I taught a class with an emergency room doctor about gun violence. And one of the things I learned from those experiences is that when somebody gets shot with a handgun or rifle, there's there's a bullet wound. And sometimes they can survive and they can go to surgery and uh, and survive that wound. When you are shot with an assault weapon, it is a shot the size of a grapefruit. And so mm. no one can survive when, you know, their their spleen is missing or, you know, mm. uh, it's gone completely through their vital organs and they're just gone. They're just pulverized. And so I think that it, it needs to be a both and solution. I think it's very easy to just sort of cherry pick mental health, which, by the way, um, is a real scapegoat, I think, uh, and just a way to, um, without any evidence whatsoever, uh, based on a lot of ignorance, suggest that we should fear people who have mental illness when, in fact, they're far less likely to be violent than people without. Can I just add, Emmett Till's mother mm-hmm. had an open casket for that exact reason. Mm-hmm. But there are many parents who did not want their children's yep. casket opened in this latest horrible mass shooting. Especially if it's a child. I agree with you. If it's a child, that should be up to the family. All right. Well, something tells me that this won't be the last time we talk about gun violence, but hopefully there will be some action on this soon. Real action and not just scapegoating. This week, we had some fabulous questions from our listeners, and it was very difficult to limit it to three, but that's what we have time for. So we'll answer three questions now, and hopefully throughout the week, we'll have a little bit of extra time to answer some of your questions on our Twitter feeds. If you have a question for us, please email it to us at sistersinlawatpoliticon.com or tweet it using the hashtag sistersinlaw. That way we'll be able to keep an eye on things and we'll try to get to as many questions as we can, including ones on the show and ones that we answer on social media. Our first question this week comes from Angie. She says, can you please define what constitutes a frivolous lawsuit? So Kim is our resident civil law expert. Can you help (laughs) with that? Yes, I think so. I'm not sure there is some specific definition in a statute anywhere of what a frivolous lawsuit is. Um, It is based on the court. So whether it's a state lawsuit or a federal one, there are rules uh, called civil rules of procedure that people have to follow. And on the federal level, there were a couple of uh, recent, and I mean, within the last uh, decade or so, Supreme Court decisions that really uh, clamped down on the requirements of filing a civil lawsuit, and some other states have followed suit as well, that really said you have to have a clear factual basis in your complaint uh, for making the claims that you are making, or else not only will those cases be thrown out, 
but the attorney filing these claims can face sanctions. They could they could face repercussions for filing a lawsuit if it is indeed deemed uh, frivolous. We we call that the Twickball standard. It's a, a a combination of two cases, one called Iqbal, one called Twombly. Um, but other states have done so as well. As somebody who practiced civil law, technically people say, you know, you can you can file a lawsuit about anything. Anybody can sue someone for anything. That's not really true. You can have repercussions. You really need to know um, if you are going to file this lawsuit, that you have the goods, that you will have the ability to prove it. Civil is a little different from criminal uh, prosecutors usually know what they can prove. The civil pr- uh, complaint usually starts the process of what you call discovery when you're actually developing and, and um, finding the evidence that you will need to proceed to trial or to settlement. But it's a harder job than it used to be. And so lawyers know basically if a lawsuit is frivolous when they file it. So changing tact and looking at criminal matters. We've got a question from Robert in Canada. This is a really great question that piqued my interest because although it harkens back to the Mueller report, um, it perhaps has new meaning as we head into the elections. Robert asks, what's required to change the policy within the U.S. Department of Justice regarding not indicting a sitting president? Jill, do you want to take a stab? I do because I had to deal with that issue of indicting a sitting president back in the Watergate days. And all that it would take to change a policy is a superseding policy. So someone in the Office of Legal Counsel has to look at the question, reevaluate the memo that supported this particular policy, and recommend a new policy. I have never believed that this policy was based on good law or good policy. And I hope they will do that. And while they're looking at policies, I'd like them to look at whether they should change the policy of the Department of Justice about never subpoenaing a sitting member of the administration on the grounds that it violates separation of powers. It doesn't seem to me that it does. And it seems to me that congressional oversight is built into our constitutional system And you can't have oversight if you can't ask members of the administration to come in and testify. And I'm not talking about necessarily in a criminal case or an impeachment case. I'm talking about just about, for example, what's happening at the border and whether a wall is necessary or not. People weren't coming in in response to subpoenas, and there was no enforcement mechanism because of that policy. So I'm hoping the Department of Justice Office of Legal Counsel will hear this and start looking at these policies and reevaluating them. They listen to this podcast every week, I'll bet you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm sure that that's true, Barb. So that means our last question is for you. This one comes from Sarah, and she asks, can you define the similarities and differences between a civil right and a civil liberty? Ooh. Is gun ownership considered a civil right or a liberty? Yeah, this is a good question because I think the terms get used a lot interchangeably. Uh, My understanding of them is as follows. A civil right is something that is usually a creature of statute, um, something that is part of the rights of citizenship, uh, like the right to vote or to be free from discrimination in public places, whereas a civil liberty are the basic freedoms that are enshrined in the Bill of Rights. You know, for example, the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, 
its mission is to defend the Bill of Rights. Um, and so that would mean gun ownership. Now, remember, it's not absolute, but the Second Amendment does protect uh, the right to keep and um, and bear arms. Um, it would be considered a civil liberty because it is protected um, in the Bill of Rights as the Second Amendment. Of course, like all other civil rights and civil liberties, none of them are absolute because when you interpret the constitution, you have to interpret the whole document. And so sometimes one right comes up against another. And so um, there's also one that says that, uh, you know, rights not um, enumerated here um, are retained by individuals. And so uh, there is also a right of the state to protect public safety. And so you have to balance those things against each other. And typically when there is a law that infringes a civil liberty, something that is enshrined in the Bill of Rights, you have to um, meet what's called strict scrutiny. That is to show that the government has a compelling interest in its law and that it has been narrowly tailored to address that compelling interest. It's not overly broad. Well, thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters-in-Law with Barb McQuaid, Joyce Vance, Joe Winebanks, and me, Kimberly Atkins-Store. Go to our show notes right now and answer our short survey and help bring Hashtag Sisters-in-Law live to your town. We will also post the link in our socials. And you can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using Hashtag Sisters-in-Law. And please support this week's sponsors, HelloFresh, Fast Growing Trees, Jenny Kane, Home, Grove, and Olive in June. You can find their links in the show notes along with our survey. Please support them as they really make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag SistersInLaw on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. And please give us a five-star review. It really helps people find us. See you next week with another episode. Hashtag SistersInLaw. Tell us about your jobs, Jill. Have you ever been a <laughs> an astronaut? Sort of a cook? <laughs> I have never worked in a restaurant. Okay. I have never worked in. I did work as a sales lady, but I used to take my check and just buy more clothes. So it was sort of a <laughs> zero sum gain from working there. Um, what else have I done? I worked as a um, salesperson for a. PR company, and it included introducing imperial margarine when it was first invented. <laughs> Did you wear the little crown? And Remember that? I, dun, da, da, da. I wore a little crown as a pin. Oh, yes. there you go. There was a Is that pin how the involved. Pin tradition oh, began? that's perfect. No, I just liked pins when I was in high school and just started wearing them as decorative things. And a friend yesterday who I had lunch with just gave me two adorable, it's a a donkey and an elephant with uh, boxing gloves on, fighting each other. Uh, so that's going to be a good I one. I thought you were going to say it was margarine. <laughs> How did she know? No, 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 no. Uh, I also, when I was still underage, I was doing Thunderbird wine. Very high quality, of course. Um, what other interesting jobs? I was a receptionist at a warehouse and I forgot about that job in filling out all the jobs that you've ever had when I was going through security clearance for the Department of Justice oh. and the FBI discovered it and I got like yes yes Wait, Lord's what warehouse, warehouse has a receptionist well not a receptionist I, a switchboard operator ah, the, a little when shady. The, the, it, yeah, it, it was, 
I wasn't what, very wait, good at it. switchboard operator, like Lily Tomlin? Yeah, that kind of switchboard operator. That you'd have to plug in? Yes, yes, oh yes, yes, yes. And I didn't oh, do it very well. One it was a temporary <laughs> job. I was, That's uh, yeah. why you forgot it. Yeah. And then I got to meet Lily Tomlin. She was a speaker at something where I was the chairman of. And that was like an amazing thing, meeting Lily Tomlin. I love can her. I, can I tell you a little bit of trivia? Lily yeah. Tomlin went to high school with my dad. Oh, yeah. She's no. from Detroit, right? Yeah. They went to Cast Tech together. She was a love cheerleader it. and he was on the football team. Love it. Oh, my God. 